Holy Father, you're such a good, good Father, and we're so grateful for you. We thank you, dear God, for this time to come together and dig into your word and feast upon your word. And we just ask you, dear God, to um, help us to, to listen closely to what we discuss and help us, dear God, today and tomorrow and next week to apply it to our lives. Let us be Jesus to those around us. Let us be Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, we are beginning to wrap up this, uh, this uh, study of Life Together. We're going to do it a couple more weeks, depending on how quickly we go. You know me. Um, one quick thing, too. Uh, there's a stack right here and over there on either side of the podium here. I, I said last week we talked about um, the uh, practice of sacred reading. The, uh, uh, the traditional word from Latin is called Lectio or Lectio Divina. Um, I said that I would give you uh, simple instructions, one-page sheet. I will, I will email it out. I keep forgetting to do that. But if you want a hard copy of it, you can take a look at that. I'll refer to it again here. So here's, here's where we are. Uh, I'm going to do a quick uh, wrap-up of what is the, the uh, I think it's the third chapter um, that we've been looking at, which is the day alone. What does it look like to, to practice time alone with God? Uh, look at Mark being a servant. Uh, you, yeah, feel free to pass it out if you want. Um, we're going to wrap that up and then we'll start uh, the first part of the last chapter which uh, in some translations of the book is called ministry, some it's called service it's the same word both in Greek and apparently in German um, here's a way to think about uh, where I feel like Bonhoeffer leads us and again if you're just joining us don't feel bad if you haven't read the book we're, we're focusing it on scripture but I'm, I'm bringing him into the conversation Here's a way I think about it. Some of you heard me tell this story before. The last year, last year because of COVID, I wasn't able to coach the young ones in football. Uh, you know, that's one of uh, God's greatest life <laughs> lessons for me is, is coaching these, these little ones. But the last year, two years ago, that we were, we were able to coach. Um, I remember this um, experience that happened. It was probably second or third week in. One of our best players on both sides of the ball, defense and offense, one of our best players, we were doing a drill. Um, and I'm always trying to kind of steal good coaching tips from places. And so I'd just gotten this new package of, of linebacker drills, like tackling drills. How do you tackle somebody? And again, very, very important in today's world. It's always been important. We just haven't paid attention to it. Is to tackle effectively, get them to the ground, but also do it safely for you. So you don't get concussions and all that stuff, right? So found this great drill to be in the right fit, right place and all that. And so we're doing this. And, you know, like anything you learn, you learn by repetition. You don't do the drill once and then just walk away. We're doing it for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And so um, th this guy, we'll call him Carl. That's not his name. It's just because I saw you. Carl um, was going through the line. And the first time, did a great job, didn't say anything. The next time, his head was in the wrong place, which is dangerous, right? And so I said, hey, try this. And, you know, I coached him up a little bit. Um, he walked away. I saw him walk over to his mom on the sideline. He was just like head in hand, all kind of stuff. And so I, you know, finished the drill or had somebody run the drill and went over to Carl. I was like, hey, what, what's going on, man? He said, well, the first time you said I did it fine, and I did the exact same way the second time. And by the way, I, I know this when I see it, because you've heard me say this before, and I mean it. I'm a recovering perfectionist, right? So I know it. <laughs> I know it when I see it, when there's somebody that's like, I got to get it perfectly right every time. If I don't one time, it's like everything is a failure, right? That's what was going on in this kid's head. So I had this conversation, and every now and then I'll have it, and it's almost only with our best players. Here's the thing. Again, I'm coaching 
at this point in time, it was like 12-year-olds, but I coach everything from, from 7, 8-year-olds up to 12, 13, 14. Um, there's two different groups, right? There's, there's the group of kids that are just out there to have fun. They're, they don't really have the skills to be doing what they're doing, but they're out there, and that's fine. I love coaching those kids, but I coach them differently. You understand this? I don't tell them this, but if they're out there and they're just not getting hurt, I'm not going to like pick, be picky with them. You, know what, you understand what I'm saying? So I told Carl, I said, here's the thing. When I coach my best players, I'm more picky with them. I, I'm gonna, I could say, I could pat you on your back and say you did fine because you did better than most of the team. But the difference is you're one of our best players. And so I always put it on them when we have a moment like this. I said, all right, Carl, here's the deal. There are some players that for them just to be out here is enough. I could talk to them all day long. They're not going to do anything differently because they're not wired for that. Does that make sense? And I'm not picking on them. It's just the way it is. I said, here's the thing. If you want, I'll coach you like that. You'll go through. I won't say a word to you. If you want. But I said, the difference is you could be great. You're not just out here to be you. You could be great. So if you want, you decide. You stay over here for a minute. You decide when you come back. You tell me, coach, I want you to coach me or not. And I'll go either way. You just need to let me know. Of course, he came back and he said, coach me up. And we did. I, I've heard stories of Peyton Manning when he went um, in every place he went. Bruce Arians had just won the Super Bowl, was one of his, uh, his quarterback coaches. And he said, coach me hard. Why? Because I want to be great. I get the impression we're at this place in the book where Bonhoeffer, remember, he's training would-be pastors, young pastors, and he's training them not just any time, he's training them in a time when the world is going to hell, literally, right? Hitler is on the rise and Christian after Christian is selling out and all that. I get the sense, just, I just want to give you a feel for what we're talking about. We're getting to the place in the book where I feel like he's saying, I'm going to coach you hard if you let me. Does that make sense? So some of the things, almost like this morning's sermon, that was a coach me hard sermon, wasn't it? Let's be honest. I don't want to hear that, but it's in the Bible. Let's hear it, okay? Look, coach me hard. Now, we can check out if we want, but I feel like we're in a great season of this church's life to say the shepherds are not content with just coasting here, right? Isn't that a lot of what's driven your hearts? We want to be the best that God can make us in this place. It's about God, not us. But we want to be transformed and shaped in such a place in a way that we can impact the community. All right, so that's just a little background on it. That's more for where we're going to go in a minute. Let me, let me just, just for a moment, we, we do discussion. We're going to do that a lot. But I, I just want to, I want to quickly kind of teach through the end of the last chapter. Just want to point out a couple things we didn't get to last time. Here's a big picture. When we get to the chapter when he says the day alone, what does it look like to have the rhythm of time alone with God? Most of the time we spent last time, is on uh, uh, the part of that rhythm that, if you're like me, I, I grew up not hearing about this, which is silence and solitude, time alone with God, letting go with God, right? Uh, letting go of the scaffolding, I think we used the quote from Henry Nouwen last time, of the false self, all the facades, right? So we talked about that last time, but he mentions two other things that he says part of the rhythm. I just want to point them out to you, uh, encourage you to go into the book or talk more, or dig into scripture more. Um, one is meditation, which we mentioned some, so I just want to uh, bring this up again. H here's a scripture for you um, in, uh, in, in Joshua chapter 1. So remember, they're about to go into the promised land, about to take the promised land after being trained for 40 years in the wilderness. That's what it was, was trained for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, this is what God chooses to, how God chooses to instruct uh, the military commander, <laughs> among other things. He's a spiritual leader, too. To Joshua, Joshua 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. 
Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. All right, so great. What's your battle plan, God? Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from the right or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. All right, so what's the battle plan? Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful in God's eyes. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I think it's significant that as God sends them into the promised land, to conquer the promised land, he doesn't give them a military strategy. He calls them to do what Bonhoeffer calls his folks to do in their time of spiritual war. He says, I want you to meditate. I want you to meditate. I mentioned this last time. I want to bring it up again because, again, if you're like me, yours, it, it, it's changed in the last decade or so, but I, I remember growing up, if I heard people talk about meditation, I would think that's for like spiritual gurus and saints. It has nothing to do with me. So I mentioned this last time. I'll say it again. Two things that helped me with meditation. Number one uh, was Rick Warren and his Purpose Driven Life. He said, if you, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. <laughs> if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. You know how to play things over in your mind again and again and again in such a way. If you're like me, I can do that in such a way. I can get down in the dumps for stuff that isn't even there. I'm just telling you, one, one of my greatest spiritual struggles in the last week, God has done incredible things with me the last week, um, helping me, because here's what I'll do. God can be faithful all throughout my life, but here's the problem for me. I don't know where he's going in the next chunk of time. And so I can create all sorts of fear in my head. That's meditating. I honestly will meditate on a future that I don't know. And usually when I choose the meditation, it's always negative. It's always scary, right? If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. So this is, this is what Warren says. When you bring in the story of Scripture, you meditate it. You cogitate on it. You chew the cud, so to speak. You bring it up in your mind, in your heart. You meditate on it. Here's the other thing that's helped me. Um, and you can see this in scripture, but throughout the ancient history of the church, meditation started simply with, tra trans uh, uh, change the word to recitation. Meditation, 90% of the time when the scripture says I'm going to meditate, it means I'm going to take a word or phrase of your scripture and I'm going to recite it. I'm going re to repeat it. Not as a mantra, but so that what is here goes where? So there, throughout, throughout Christian history, throughout Judeo-Christian history, part of the practice of engaging God in Scripture, and again, you see it here, what did God say? Let the word of the law. Moses was already writing Scripture. He was already recounting stories of the, of the activity of God. What did he say? Let it always be on your lips. Speak it, recite it, say it again and again. Uh, you know this also from the great text of the Old Testament, the Shema, right? What do they say? You teach your kids where? You put it on the door frames. You talk about it when you go to sleep. You talk about it when you're walking the door. You're meditating. You're calling up again the words of God. So here's a simple way to engage time alone with God. You might read a chunk of scripture, and you hear me say this all the time, even when we're talking here, because it's a great practice. Let the Holy Spirit bring one word to your heart, one little phrase, one little piece on it, and chew the cut on it. <laughs> right? That is... Christian meditation, and that's okay. Now, you can do other things, and there's deeper ways to do it and all of that, but at its core, there is power in taking the actual words of God, 
and saying them again and again. Why? We know this with everything else in life. Why does Coke spend a billion dollars telling you the same ad again and again? Why does the stupid general commercial I have to turn off every time? Because I'm sick of that song. Because they know repetition gets inside of you. So what if, we, what if we say, God, would you let the repetition of the very words of God get into the rhythm of my soul? Does that make sense? Silence, meditation, and then the last thing he says is um, uh, intercession. So part of what we do in our time alone, even when we're alone, we turn to the other. So we're interceding for the other. Again, it's a lot deeper in that. I don't want to spend a ton more time, but I will say my favorite quote in that section of the book said, um, I cannot hate a brother or sister for whom I am praying. Now I confess, I got a pretty dark heart. I can, <laughs> but in the moment, probably not. What he's saying is in that moment, if I'm, if I'm angry with someone, I'm resenting someone, I'm hurting someone, turn it to prayer and then I'm moving over the course of time, you will find yourself letting go of the hatred and the pain and the resentment. Does that make sense? So we, we intercede, and he is very specifically, you'll see this in the next chapter too. This is when we're getting deeper. This is when we're going from good to great. We're drilling on this. In a Christian community, especially one that's been around this long, you will have resentment, you will have division, and you will have conflict. Bonhoeffer says one thing we do with that is we pray on it. When we're alone, we are praying for the sake of the other, and he specifically will mention the one that is causing you the most trouble, pray for them. You've heard me say it before, again and again, I'll say it again. The quickest way to get on my prayer list is make me mad. I mean it. Hurt me. I hurt you. Don't forgive me. I will pray for you every day. And that's not because I'm a saint. It's the exact opposite. Because as my friend Terry Smith says, I'm crippled. Crippled by death. Any questions, thoughts on that before we move it? I just want to make sure we didn't totally skip that part of the book, which is really, really powerful. Any questions, comments? Oh, oh one more thing I'll say. The, the, the gold of that chapter. Uh, he ends with this. Uh, he calls it the test of meditation. Oh, this is really good. Uh, so expand it to, the, to um, what is the proving ground? What is it that will kind of show me how effective my time alone with God? Not just the meditation portion, my time alone with God, how effective is that? And this is not for guilt purposes, this is growth purposes. Got me? Okay? Don't walk away. Okay? If you don't want to be coached, go somewhere else. To grow deeper in my walk with God, in grace, I'm saved, but grow deeper. Um, hear this. this. This was incredibly convicting to me. Every day brings the Christian many hours in which he will be alone in an unchristian environment. These are the times of testing. <laughs> this is the test of true meditation and true Christian community. What happens when I'm not in the holy place? That's the test. We see at this point whether Christians' time of meditation has led them into an unreal world in which they awaken with a fright when they step out in the workaday world, or, or whether it has led them into the real world of God from which they enter into the day's activity strengthened and purified. You hear what he's saying? This is deep stuff. Sometimes I can do my Christian activities in order to escape the real world. I'm going to live in the little dream world of God, and it has no impact on the way that I live in the really difficult world outside. So here's what he asks. Has it transported them for a few short moments into a spiritual ecstasy that vanishes when everyday life returns? Again, this is a great question for church, right? 
Do we come, and it's all great, and we have full communion, and we sing, and then we go cuss people out when we get in the parking lot? Right? Again, I'm being honest here. Or has it planted the word of God so soberly and so deeply in the heart that it holds and strengthens them all day long, leading them to active love, to obedience, to good works? Only the day can decide. Whoa, that's good, isn't it? Isn't that great? So the test for my meditation is not whether I had the hair standing up on the back of my neck or God's light shone in the room. That's cool. It's how do I treat you when I walk out of the door of my prayer, of my time alone. Does that make sense? Again, not guilt, growth. So this has been something I've had to ask myself in, in, in times when, you know, I try to practice Sabbath and let go and disengage from media and all that kind of stuff. Do I come out of that very self-centered, which I have a lot? Or do I come out of that engaged back into the community with people around me in more loving and strengthened ways? Those are good questions. So if, if it's regularly turning me in a self-centered way, then maybe I need to adjust what I'm doing in my time alone with God. Does that make sense? Isn't this incredibly practical? I hope it is for you. It's meaningful to me. All right, so let's, uh, let's dive into uh, uh, where we are this week. We have a, a little less time for issues. All righty. Um, you may already certainly know the answer to this because you guys have been in church a long time. But if you would ask Scripture, let's imagine we can talk to Scripture. We can talk to the Holy Spirit. If you can ask Scripture, again, we're talking about that place where we're drilling down and we want to grow. And we, we want to get to those places, the marks of Christian maturity, right? I'm looking around the room. I'm talking to some people here. We're, we're sharing together with people to walk the journey for a while. So this is a very appropriate conversation. What is the mark of Christian maturity? Or to say it differently, if you ask scripture, what is the most difficult area of life to bring under control? And what is the hardest thing to bring under the lordship of Jesus? If you're like me, other, other than you, if you know the scripture I'm going to, if you're like me, I would be shocked to think of where it is. Yep, Becky's right on. James chapter 3, book of this text. May surprise you what scripture says the hardest thing is to deal with in the Christian life. Again, I've got some thoughts here, but let's, uh, this is where we can dive in and share with each other. What is God telling us about kind of the, uh, the more master's PhD level of the Christian life? James 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say. Anybody sign up for that category? Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Able to keep their whole body in check. Then he throws out just a bunch of metaphors, so just work with the metaphors. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot or captain wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. But it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All right, James is a coach, right? He's not going to let us kind of just sit on the side. He's coaching us up here. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Get his image. Let me read the first part of that again. And again, I want to now point out to you, what are you hearing? Is there an image that grabs you here? Is a word or phrase that grabs you or any picture of what God is calling us or coaching us to in this moment? We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot or captain wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of life, one's life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. What do you hear? Think that piece, that piece, and this piece, and here. Let me grab Jim. It could be just since I got the mic, I'll, I'll say something. Okay. And again, uh, eat, eat the mic when you talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just... Uh, what stood out to me was the uh, the part there about um, uh, where where we we praise God, but then we treat human beings like uh, uh, in a totally different way. With our lips, we're praising God because we can't see Him, we can't be affected by Him. But human beings, we can be affected by, and we treat treat them differently somehow. We disconnect between how we treat our brother, how we treat our fellow man, uh, as if uh, they were separate, but uh, the same understanding. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And again, isn't this exactly what Jesus was kind of trying to get at when people came and said, all right, what, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one? Well, he said, you can't do the one without the other, right? Jesus says that. We cannot love God without loving neighbor, and it fit in with what we talked about today. Or in 1 John, where it says, don't say that you love the God you can't see. If we're treating the people we can see and we're around um, in, in, in despicable ways or whatever. So all of these things are hitting the same theme. Isn't it also incredibly fitting for today's report that we got? How we interact with the community. How do we respond to what God is crying out to us in terms of the need of the community? has a lot to say about, don't you see this fits with a test of meditation? Like the test of our worship here is in part played out by how we engage the community around us. It's beautiful, Steve. Yeah, Alvin. To deal with the problems of life, move beyond the logical and the rational into the spirit realm. Absolutely. And here's what I love about James. I, I did a series on James one time, and I called it Spirit and Dirt, because we can talk about the spiritual, but the spirit is also earthy, right? So we move beyond just an intellectual thing, but for James, he's not going to talk just about spiritual holy stuff if it isn't played out in the dirty, messy, everyday life of human relationships. Thank you, Albert. Yeah. Uh, let me see. I like uh, verse 6. Like a fire, 
Pastor Sunday's Word of Unrighteousness. Um, and said among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So you have to be very, very careful what you say. And, um, you know, like Jesus said, a lot of what comes out of the mouth is in the heart. So be very careful. Absolutely. I always love it when the Morrises speak. I always say this because whatever's next on my page, I promise they will say. So I kid you not, right here, Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, right? I could read the rest. I love you guys so much. It's so beautiful. The back, mouth speaks what the full of. And he says, a good person is bringing up stuff that's the good stuff on the inside. And, and we can know, again, part of the test of where I am in my life, not going to hell, but how I'm growing, is what's coming out of my mouth on a regular basis, right? It's hard for me. It's chilling, but yes. I think the other side of that is knowing that the small word can spark um, a movement. So um, where a small word can discourage, like the football player you were talking about, and you hang your head, and you can breed negativity through an entire congregation or small group or whatever, you can also do the opposite. A small word yes, yes, can spark yes. a flame that ignites a passion, which breeds whatever movement um, you need, because a small encouragement can go a long way yes. oh, gotcha. if given at the right time to the right person, yeah. and you can change the world by that as yeah. well as destroy. So beautifully said, Renee. In fact, that um, Melly and I were just talking. I, I just found out Catherine Morrow is related, is a cousin or something, to one of the mentors in ministry I had back in, in Virginia. He was in North Carolina, a guy named Bailey Forrest. But I'll never forget when he taught on this passage, the first time I heard somebody do what you just did, he said, this is, James is kind of, he's challenging and convicting, right? So he's talking kind of on the negative side of things. But if, the, if speech has that kind of power, what if we turned it to the positive? Um, and I, I think of a couple different ways that come to my mind. One of the reasons that the, the daily office, that the way that the ancients have prayed prayers throughout time, is they're praying actual words of scripture. And one of the things, and again, this was Bailey's um, uh, turn of it. What if instead of um, condemnation, we turn to confession? Like the confession of like when you look at the, the classic work of that name, Augustine, when he wrote the book called Confessions, it was not just his confession of sin. This is really important. It was also his confession of faith. He said, this is what I believe. So one of the, the, the rhythms of the daily prayer of the church for the last at least 1,500 or more years has been confessing the, the uh, Apostles' Creed. So that's part of the rhythm that I do every day. This is what I believe, even if I'm not feeling it in the moment, right? We believe in, in one holy, universal church. And I might look around and we're all fighting. So there are times I need to confess the good thing because it might turn me towards the very thing I'm confessing. I love that. The other thing I would remind you of is what, uh, what Nancy has talked about a lot from, uh, from the book 1 Corinthians. Uh, instead of talking about SEC football, talk about SEC scripture. What is SEC? Um, what was the S? I forgot. Encouragement, support, encouragement, and comfort, right? That's what the prophetic word in the book of 1 Corinthians. So what if we spoke, when we came to the, the Christian community, we came here not just to receive, but also to pray, God, is there somebody that needs a word of support? Is there somebody that needs a word of encouragement? Is there somebody here that needs a word of comfort? And we speak it. There's power. Thank you so much for that, Renee. Other thoughts on this? 
every time in my life I thought, I've got to say that part. And, and eat the mic, eat the mic so we can hear you. Uh, okay. I, I'm you thinking contemplate, but I'm not wanting to use that word. Uh, what did you just say? Meditate, that's it. I was trying to meditate, and I thought, how do you do it? And then I remembered the scripture that said, be still and know that I am God. And I literally made my body be still. I made my mind quit thinking of things and just learned to do that until it almost got to be a perpetual habit. Like you're perpetually chewing on, you know, the good things that go through your mind or yeah. when you read scripture or something. But Thank anyway... God's good. <laughs> Amen. No, thank you for that. One of the things, again, this fits into that category, and it goes where James is going here. One of the places where we do spiritual life that I've often neglected is the body itself. That's why many believers over the course of history have said your posture matters. When I am confessing, there's probably some times I need to confess getting on my knees and I'm on my face because sometimes I, I have to get my body to go where my heart isn't yet. And it's exactly, I love that. Be, we talked about this last week, and so thank you for bringing that up again. Be still and know I'm God. I'll quote that all the time, and then I don't do it. When my mind is frantic and crazy, maybe the thing I need to do is, is get my body to do what my mind isn't, and I'm just still for a moment. Thank you. And here, James goes to the body, too. He says, this little thing in your body is like the rudder on a ship. It's like the spark of a, of a, of a, of a fire, right? It can torch the whole thing with this one tiny thing. David, are you going to say something? Or are you just playing with your mask? <laughs> you watch, this is like a, an auction. If you move too quickly, you're gonna, you, just, you just made a bid. Well, I was just thinking through the analogy of the metaphors that are in this. There's, there's this image of wildness of, you know, the, uh, the wind is wild. It's untamable. It, it, it blows in every way you want. We don't control the wind. We, we uh, there's, the, there's the fire. We, we don't, once a fire is raging, we don't control the fire. I mean, we can work hard to get it out. I mean, we just look at the wildfires that we've had recently. And, and once they're going, they're going. Um, uh, there's the horse. The horse, uncontrolled, is a dangerous beast. Uh, I've, been, I've been put off of one <laughs> in my life once, and it, it's not fun. It's the bridle. It's the rudder. And it's the controlled use of that spark that is what uh, this is all about. And yeah. I've really appreciated uh, her comment on, and, and what we looked at in the, the Joshua passage on the meditation, that's the rudder. Yep. That's, that's, that's the bridle. That's the careful use of the, the guarded use of the spark. All of those things, everything about it is great. Right. It's a, how, do you, how do you tap into that process of... Yes. Learning how to turn the rudder, Beautiful. learning how to take the spark, the flint, whatever produces that, and use it wisely. Yeah, um, and taking that wildness that is there. Yep. You can't, you can't do away with it. It's there. Right. It's like a passion. It's already. It's like it's almost put in you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're created in the image of God. There's all of that stuff is there. It's like, what do you do? Right. To take that and tame it. And I think it is what we're talking about. It is the meditating on the scripture and all these types of things and that are those little devices mm -hmm. that make it possible for God to use us in a way that's yeah. that exists, particularly in a way that's creative. Powerful, powerful. So let's think about that because this is one of the places where 
where Bonhoeffer gets fiercely practical, and I think it's helpful. So let's, first thing, what, what David brought up. What do you notice that's in common all three of the metaphors he uses there, right? So you've got the, uh, the rudder, you've got a spark, and you've got the bridle of the horse. All of them steer it. They move it. So here's, a, here's the, the picture the metaphors bring out here in the book of James. You know what our mouth is, our tongue is, is the guidance system for your life. Now, have you thought about that before? Our speech as a community and as individuals is the guidance system for our life. That's why confession matters. That's why singing matters. That's why not just preaching on it, but reading scripture matters. Because we're speaking where we want our lives to go. Does that make sense? Really important. So one of the things, one of the things we do here is we speak in such a way that it guides us where we want to go. But that's not where he starts. This is where Bonhoeffer starts. Give you a second. Let me, let me unpack what he's saying. Here's his real practical thing he says. Do you know what he says? The first thing a Christian community does? Shut up. Did you not? The first practice of Christian community is to restrain their speech. Let me, let me read what he says here. Page 91, at least my translation. Often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be verbalized. If what I'm thinking about you comes out of my mouth, it may steer me towards the malice I'm saying. Now, by the way, th th this isn't an absolute rule that has no exceptions. One of the things I've told you about before that, that my friend Phil taught me is that I have to get out of my head so with a very trusted friend... I may speak out, he calls it the practice of crazy thoughts. He'll say, sit down, let me tell you my crazy thought right now. I would like to kill this person. <laughs> You're right. But you know, whatever it is. So you speak out your crazy thoughts. But what he's saying is, as a general rule in practice, if I got malice, I've got something going on, I don't speak it. Now listen to this. This is, the, uh, this is where he just, and he's reading our mail. Have you ever had the situation where, and I've done it, and I've had it done. <laughs> Let's share prayer with you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a prayer request. It isn't a real prayer request. It's an opportunity to gossip and blast about the other person. Listen, this was 50 years ago or whatever. Listen to what he says. It must be a decisive rule in every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Just don't always say what you're thinking. I know my, I'm just giving you all sorts of people, all right? I'm I need to live this out myself, but what? Talking about others in secret is not allowed, even under the pretense of help and goodwill. Right? In this reading our mail. For it is precisely in this guise that the spirit of hatred between believers always creeps in, seeking to cause trouble. Isn't that great? Watch for the prayer requests. Oh, I just got to tell you, have you heard about it? Right? Watch for that. He said, we don't talk privately about another person. And I know there are limited, there's sometimes you got to vent, sometimes you got to get crazy thoughts out. But as a general rule in practice, we restrain our speech about other people. By the way, can we just stop here and say, is any Christian community going to do well with this? This is hard stuff. Quick point on the other one, I'll go to Tim. It starts off with this ridiculous statement. Did you notice that? Anybody who's able to be faultless in their speech can keep their whole body in check. Now, young me would read that text as a command, 
and then guilt and shame myself because I'd never be able to do it. I think he's talking about a vision, right? He's putting a vision out there. By the way, as a recovering perfectionist, it's helpful to be, Albert, you know this better than I do, the word here that is translated perfect is probably more helpfully in our culture translated as mature, fully grown, or developed. It's when something reaches the goal it's intended to be. So he's saying, if you want to be a mature person in Christ, if you want to be a mature Christian community, you are a person or a community that keeps in check your speech. Why? Because that keeps the whole body in check. What if we're not just talking about this body, we're talking about this body? Isn't that powerful? Right? This is a strong thing. The first thing we do in a Christian community is we don't say everything we think. Isn't that ridiculously practical and incredibly hard? By the way, all of this drives me back to the grace of God. God, would you do for me what I cannot do for myself? Sorry, I was a little creepy there. But Tim, what do you think? Is it on? Yeah. As a practical matter, this scripture took on more meaning when I got tired of the taste of leather. And what I discovered is when I say something like this, it comes back on me. It does me more damage. I I don't know if it does more damage to me or not, but I know it damages me. And there's been a lot of times where if I'd have just kept my lips together, things would have been a lot easier. Yes, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Other thoughts on this? Yes, Kimberly. I've got two different thoughts, really. The first one is the fire part. And the fire part being refinery in that what the Holy Spirit can do for us and and does do for us is that he refines that if we allow him to and yield to him instead of yielding to flesh without having that self-control or that bridle on our mouth my mouth in that he uses that as a refinery process a purification if you will to help us if we allow that that's my first thought yeah my second thought is i have a good friend that's going for a heart test tomorrow, um, stress test, and she's been all up in arms about it. And I asked her, I said, how would you feel to take prayer requests? This is not the prayer request you were referring to. Someone that is on your heart that you need to pray for. It will take yourself out of yourself and out of the stress that you're under because you're going to a stress test on your heart. The last thing you need to is that. And I said, why don't you take a, a, a list of friends that you're praying for and to meditate and pray for exactly. those folks Absolutely. and take your mind off of yourself yes. so that when you do have to do your heart stress test, you won't be stressed. <laughs> That's right. I love that. That's great. And you'll see how a lot now we're getting to this place where a lot of these things are coming together, right? And I'm going to come back to that one in just a second. Let me, let me throw out one more thing. Again, we're just bringing Bonhoeffer in. He's sitting in the room, and he's throwing a couple things in here. One of the things he says, and, and you notice he's especially targeting malicious speech, you know, speech that is cutting, right? Um, and if we can let go of that, here's one of the things he says that will happen. The result is we will begin to experience more of an appreciation for the richness of the diversity of the people of God. Let me say that again. If I can stop judging somebody else because they're not like me, I might be more prone to realize, oh, God wired that person differently than he wired me. And that's a beautiful thing, right? So his words were better than mine. Hear hear it this way. Where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the start, individuals will make an amazing discovery. 
They will be able to stop constantly keeping an eye on others, judging them, condemning them, and putting them in their places and thus doing violence to them. Their view of others expands. Think about that. Again, this is some deep stuff. Their view of others expands. To their amazement, they recognize for the first time the richness of God's creative glory shining over their brothers and sisters. If I can stop trying to fix everything about you, I might, if I can shut up long enough, God might say, hey, do you see this in this other person? I love this line. Here's a great mantra. If you want something to repeat in your head, God did not make others as I would have made them. <laughs> Isn't that great? God did make, not make other people the way I would have made them. God did not give them to me so that I could dominate them and control them, but so that I might find the creator by means of them. God does not want me to mold others into the image that seems good to me, that is, into my own image. Instead, in their freedom from me, God made other people in God's own image. And I can never know in advance how God's image should appear in other people. Isn't that great? If I can just stop trying to change everybody around me, I might discover something deeper about the image of God in somebody else that isn't like me. And then we come together as a body and say, thank God that you're wired differently. Mike and I talk a lot about this. You have gifts I couldn't even imagine. But in Mike sharing his gifts over the last three months has blessed mine in a totally different way. And I appreciate you even more than I did before. That's part of what we do in the body of Christ. Isn't that cool? I love that. That's one gift. Um, then then uh, this is the other piece that I think uh, that, that gets us. Well, well, we'll get there in a second. A- any other thoughts on that one? Powerful, powerful picture. Um, last thing on that little section, we'll look at one more text in the last 10 minutes we've got on ministry. But this goes, and again, this is, I, I love how God will dovetail worship with what we're talking about here. So this is how he ends this section. How do we have the energy to let go of judgment and condemnation of other people? How do we do that? Uh, I would go back to uh, uh, Phil. How does Romans 12 start? In view of God's mercy. This is the way I relate myself to other people in the world, in view of God's mercy. So here's his line. I think it's incredible. Once individuals have experienced the mercy of God in their lives, from then on they desire only to serve, not condemn others. The proud throne of the judge no longer lures them. I love this line. Take this in. Instead, they want to be down among the lowly and needy because that's where God found them. Isn't that great? I don't do well on thrones. I don't do well on judgment seats. I don't do well there because God never found me there. He found me when I was in the pit. And so that's where I want to stay from the rest of my life. I'm just going to stay down here for the rest of my life because that's where God found me. So what if, isn't that great? What fuels me in that? And I can, I can creep back up in the judge's spot. But it's in that moment I'm forgetting the incredible mercy of God who chose not to judge me but to judge Christ and then release me. That's more than a bumper sticker. That's more than just, oh, that's what we say in church. It is the fuel to take that next step in the coaching process. Does that make sense? Again, some powerful stuff he does. All right, let's, let's end with this. Just a quick look at, so what we just talked about, he calls it the ministry, the ministry of holding one's tongue. <laughs> so the first thing we do in Christian community is we don't say everything we think. I think that's powerful. The second one he calls the ministry of meekness, which is a hard word for us to get excited about. Um, and so we will go to the second part of that text, Romans 12. 
verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. He quotes this text. So this is what he's unpacking. This isn't just a neat little statement. He's saying this is a ministry we do to each other here. This is how we relate to each other. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member, listen to the power of this word, each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then enc- give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And read that first part again because this is where he's leaning in. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Thoughts on this? How do we... What are you hearing in this text about practicing the ministry of meekness in our relationships to other people? Yes, Renee. Keith? Other side? K1, K2? Is that what we're <laughs> I was thinking um, earlier, and this kind of ties into it, that um, you hear that food servers dread working on Sundays because they get the lowest tips from the church people that come and eat. They, um, you know, Friday and Saturday when the drinkers come, they make more money. And so we have this reputation in, in a, a whole service community that Christians are cheap. And so here, talking about meekness, and I'm thinking that when you apologize to somebody for a great wrong, you usually have to go a little bit further than meeting in the middle. You know, the, the husband that's truly wronged his wife comes with flowers and chocolates. We know that joke, you know, when you bring flowers just for any reason, you know, what did you do wrong kind of thing. <laughs> but um, so I think in our meekness, we need to take it a step further than where we actually need to be. So if if in our um, our humbleness and our meekness and riding the rudder, we would take one step forward, to begin with, we need to take two. We need to go that second mile to show that we're all in it and we truly are putting our feet where our mouth is now so that once we've gotten their attention, like going out for lunch, we double tip so that Sundays become the favorite day to work. And then you get to a point where you can go out and you can tip your normal amount and have a conversation with your server because now they don't dread the fact that you're there. They look forward to the fact that you're there. So that's a simple analogy, but we can do that in any walk of life, anybody that we've wronged or any community that we as this body have wronged or any person that me as this body has wronged can first take a second step 
so that eventually you can just take that one step and it's comfortable. That's so powerful. You know, you know what I love? There's a couple things I love about that. One is when we're having these conversations, you, you hear me use this language all the time. Um, I, I grew up thinking, you know, we're doing things so that we don't go to hell or whatever. So that God, loves, No, we're in. God loves us. We're his children. Now what are we doing? We're training. We're practicing living the life God calls us to. You just gave us a great practice test. You gave us good drills like me finding the drill that I'm bringing down to the kid. That's awesome. It's a great way to do it. And one of the people that I heard this from, um, that very, very thing you talked about some years ago, uh, a guy named Landon Saunders. You know him, don't you, Albert? One of one great, great, mighty men of God. And I remember him preaching one time. He was talking about generosity. He was talking about the people of God are called to be generous people, not because we're checking a box, because we serve the God who, although he was rich, became poor for our sake so that we might become rich, right? That's the God we worship. And so do you know what he does? When he goes and, and somebody waits on him, they do a good job, he tips them well. Do you know what he does when they, they do a, poor, a horrible job? He tips them even better. You want to get a great tip from Landon Saunders? Do a horrible job waiting on him. Now, it's probably not a good thing if they found that out, right, and <laughs> somebody does that. I just think it's incredible because this is what he says. Now, this is, this is a Ph.D. in following Jesus, man of God. He says, I'm assuming they had a pretty bad day. Something's going on in their life, so I'm going to try to give them even more of a blessing. Oh, my gosh. I'm so far from that. I'm just telling you I'm so far from that. But isn't that a beautiful picture? He's practicing the heart of a generous God who gives even more to us. What did Paul say? <laughs> When sin increased, grace, grace increased all the more. That doesn't mean we go out and sin. It just means we celebrate the generosity of God, and then we practice it in our life. Thank you for that. Yeah. One of the things you said was, you know, what are they thinking? I I do that. Um, Kevin and uh, Aaron probably get tired of me doing it. But, you know, if, if something happens and they're like, I can't believe they did that, or what were they thinking, or why did they do that? I immediately come up with five different options as to why they may have done that. That's what that wonderful lady and, does for me um, all the time. Yeah. Yes. And usually it's to give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's not to to say anything to Kevin or Aaron. It's because I need that practice for, for me. Yes. So yes. I'm giving those five options because awesome. I need to change my thinking. And so if I can put myself in their shoes and think, well, if I were in this situation, why have I done this? So you saying, you know, they may have had a bad day. And, um, you know, I was a server in high school and college. And so um, when I'm at a restaurant, I'm harder on them about what I think they can do. Right. But I'm more generous to them in giving grace you've been there. and tipping because I'm like, you know, they just got sat three tables at the same time. Let's yep. just wait a minute. You know, so I can kind of awesome. think through that. So when I'm in a situation where I don't have that experience, I try to think, okay, what would make them think that? You know, you get cut off in traffic, and you're like, why did they do that? Well, they may not have seen me. They may yep. be going to the hospital. They may have just gotten bad. You know, and so I, yep. I talk through options, of course. I, I love options. So if you're trying to figure out options, I, I, I can give you about <laughs> five or six usually. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. And that's why we need people like you in our spiritual community. This is part of what we do together. Some people have that gift. They're more Landon Saunders like you guys. Some, like I'll, I'll think of five things that will be the excuse, but all of them are like put them as evil, satanic people in the pit of hell. That's, I'm just being, <laughs> being honest. All right, so, so let's put it all together with the last couple of minutes. And just so, so what does he say? We start, now watch both of these things we do. We start 
by restraining our speech, so we, we start physically just restraining our speech. The second practice is actually something we do with our minds. So the meekness, and this is Paul's language, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Now, quick word on not beating ourselves up on this. When I was a little kid, I took that as, oh, so think I'm a horrible, awful, terrible human being. That's not what it says. Isn't it interesting that Paul goes immediately from don't think too highly of yourself to go on and list the gifts? What's he saying? Again, those in recovery get this. Part of what you, the centerpiece of a good, healthy recovery is called a fearless moral inventory. And what I learned from my codependent recovery folks is that an inventory isn't just looking at the bad. When you go to stock shelves at the grocery store, you don't just want to know what you don't have. What else do you want to know? What do I have? Here's what Paul says. Don't think you're God's gift to the world if you're not, but also don't forget the gift that God gave you. Think of yourself with sober judgment. But what does he say? In accordance with the grace you have been given. Everybody in this room is gifted by God to be in this church, in this time. Fan that gift to flame for the glory of Jesus. And that's part of your inventory. You can say, I'm good at doing this. I enjoy doing this. It's a passion of mine. Let's do it. That's not sub-Christian. We need to do that. And we also need to say, I'm not great at this. And I don't. And most importantly, I don't need to take your inventory. That's the place I go wrong. I don't need to take any of your inventory. I just need to work on mine, right? So here's, here's a practice I came across this week. It was independent of reading Bonhoeffer. It has been life-changing for me. I'm practicing. I'm not great at it. But what can I do when I encounter folks? And this is what I can do. I, I've told you before. I can... I, I can just mentally start slotting people. I don't mean to do this, and I've gotten much better, but I'll encounter somebody, and I'll, I'll often put them up here, right? Mike, I already think you're like superhero organized man, and I know that's not true, but so I can slot you here, or I can think you're not worth my time. I'm just being honest. We can do that sometimes. I can do that. But here's what he says. When we judge other people, here's a practice, um, and this comes from a guy named Martin Laird um, who wrote a book called Ocean of Light, but this, this he says, um, he's unpacking this idea of not judging other people. And he said, Christians will also have a modest opinion about their own plans and intentions. Wrong thing. That's, that's uh, Bonhoeffer. Sorry, hold on. I need to get the right Bonhoeffer here. Where did I go with this? Well, I'll just have to tell you. Oh, no, here it is. Okay. Um, he says, a lot of what we battle, one way to think about it is we battle the ego. I, I, this was just life-changing for me. All right, what is the ego in, in the bad sense of the word? There's healthy senses, but what is the ego? He said the two weapons of the ego are clinging and comparing. Two battles of the ego. If I'm going to bolster myself in a false way, clinging and comparing. Clinging, I'm going to desperately try to hold on to what I want over against maybe what God wants for me. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to fight for it. Subject of another time, but comparing. The ego to make myself feel better or sometimes feel worse or appease guilt or whatever, I'll, I'll compare people all over the place. So he says, here's, here's what he suggests. It's a practice of thought. And he says, can we practice not seeing other people as rivals, but instead in that moment, if I'm prone to judge, turn our attention to our own faults and shortcomings. This deflates the ego and at least for the moment breaks the mental habit of comparing ourselves with others. If I find somebody annoying me or I find somebody just, can I just for a moment say, God, what, do you, what is it in them that you're trying to teach me right now? Maybe we know this, the old line, you spot it, you got it. So if I don't like something, somebody else, probably something going on in me that I need to talk about. Or if I'm looking at, God, can you just let me be 
okay with who I am, even if I don't have that yet. Does that make sense? That seems, I'm, I'm not sure I'm being clear on this. In the moment, instead of just not speaking, what if I turn it around and I start speaking a prayer to God on behalf of the other person and an internal reflection on me? God, there's something going on. Can you step into this moment? Not just for me not to say bad things, but God, can you teach me something about what's going on in me? You feel those practices are pretty powerful. This is a way that we can mature and grow. These are drills. These are hard. We grow deeper in our walk with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I'm just I'm drawn to the fact that, that this passage that talks about not being able to restrain speech, I think of a couple things. You spoke creation into existence. Your word is always primary. It's always first, and it's always life-giving. And then I think about the way that you gave all of us life and the ways that we are broken and in the trenches and, and needy and all of that. You did it by not saying a word. And Jesus, you stood in front of human beings who had no right to condemn you and they were condemning you. It says like a, like a lamb before it shears, you were silent. And you let that happen so that we might be given life. God, I pray for your wisdom to teach us this week to know when to speak and to know when to hold our tongue and to listen, and then to turn it in desperate attempt, Father, for you to make us better people. Father, we know we're saved. We know we're in your community. But Father, we do, we, we do want you to coach us. We do want you to help us to be even more effective in being witnesses in this community for the glorious resurrection of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.